Today we're going to be continuing a sermon series called Jesus, the Life, Light, and Love um, that is written by a man named John to a group of people in Asia Minor, specifically an ancient city called Ephesus. And so today we're going to be reading um, this passage found in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Follow along with me. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in Him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. At 19 years of age, I became a follower of Jesus, and it wasn't long after that that I had someone named Richard Carwile. that if you've been around Mission or will continue to be around Mission for quite some time, you'll hear stories about Richard. But uh, Richard was involved in something then called Campus Crusade for Christ, and I think it's now called Crew. Um, but uh, myself, I found myself kind of diverse or, or kind of... Uh, placed into this ministry on the campus of Western Kentucky University, where this older guy, or he seemed really old to me, but he was like in his mid-twenties at that time, um, started pouring into me and discipling me at 19 years of age, and I quickly learned the importance of the power of making disciples. And though I had grown up in church, um, I had grown up in a Pentecostal charismatic holiness, that's kind of my tribe, my lineage of where I came from. And in that tribe, specifically in the tribe that I was in, uh, evangelism and missions wasn't something that was really talked about or encouraged. Um, and yet, when I became a Christian, one of the first things that was discipled to me or disciplined to me, or that I became a student of from Richard and ultimately from the Scripture, was the importance of making disciples. And in that was evangelism. And so just like you, if you are scared about sharing the gospel with people and you have a fear of man or you're fearful of what you would say or that you wouldn't say the right things. These young group of college students, some of which are here today, uh, joined me in this training on how to evangelize and the importance of sharing the gospel. And we learned something, I think it's from a guy named Dr. James Kennedy. I think he's the one that is uh, placed and responsible for these two questions, but they were delivered to me as the Kennedy questions. And I was like, JFK came up with these? And the Again, I was a new believer, and I, I quickly learned different Kennedy. But anyway, um, we learned these questions called the Kennedy questions, named after, I believe, James Kennedy from the evangelism explosion. If you're an older person, maybe you've heard of that from the 1970s, very, and it's still going on today, is this thing called the evangelism explosion. But we were encouraged that when you sat down with someone, or if you went to on campus and you were knocking on doors or talking with people in, in what was called duck at that time, um, you would go there and you would ask them these two questions to bridge, to Jesus juke them into a conversation about the gospel. Everybody follow me? So you sit down and you're, I know my wife does, um, she was put through this uh, as well. But we would sit down with people and we would ask them these questions very seriously, as a college student, 19 years of age. If you were to die tonight, and you were to stand before God, and He was to say, why should I let you into this heaven? Why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? 
then you'd wait. You can probably guess what most of the answers were. Well, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Right? Or I went to church. Or I said a prayer. I got, I got baptized when I was seven at that Baptist church out there. Right? I mean, you'd hear all kinds of answers. And if they said anything other than Jesus, you were like, I got it. Right? The next question that we would ask is, from, on a sliding scale from zero to 100%, if you were to die tonight, I mean, these serious questions as a 19-year-old, right? As you, if you were to die tonight from a zero to 100%, how sure are you that you would go to heaven? And then you wait. You wait for a response. You wait for an answer. And if they gave you anything less than 100%, then, then this is what is your opportunity, Christian, pounce on them with the gospel so that they know that they know that they know that they can be saved. Now, I, hopefully, prayerfully, I think that there's a lot of good intentions with that mode and bridging of the gospel. I think the intention is good there. Um, I, I, I agree with its message, though I don't know if I necessarily agree now at 41 with its, its method, but I, I agree that it's, it's better to say something and to ask something than to be silent, all right? But, but this mentality, though, of that you've got to be 100%, and that that 100% assurance is there all the time, at 41, following Jesus now for 20-something years, I, I, I don't know that I can be there with that, right? I don't know if the Scripture is even alluding um, that a Christian cannot have doubts. I, I believe that there is, is definitely space within Christendom and in salvation for there to be some, some doubts. But what I am saying, because I believe this is what the Bible is saying, that, that God never intended for us to be enslaved to those doubts. He never intended us to be enslaved to those things, where we're constantly living in a, in a fear or anxiety or on whether or not we are saved. That's how I grew up the first 19 years of my life. There was never any assurance, nor even any talk of assurance. That it was a moment-by-moment, second-by-second, you could be saved and unsaved all in the matter of the same minute. So you can imagine the fear and anxiety of constantly walking around like there is no assurance. So that's on, on one end, and yet the walking around 100% sure 100% of the time is not my experience. And if it is yours, bless you. What a, what a gift of grace that you've been given. But I will say this, a lack of assurance inside of a Christian, and when we're talking about assurance, we're talking about these questions of, man, am I saved? How can I know that I'm saved? Can I, can I be sure that Jesus has saved me? And there's a big danger in having a lack of, insur of assurance, not insurance. There, there's a danger of not having insurance as well, but totally different conversation. Um, but a lack of assurance, I'm going to do that all day now. A lack of assurance paralyzes our walk with Jesus. 
If you can never be confident enough in the person and work of Jesus to have a, an assurance of, of, of some measure that it will actually paralyze our walk with Jesus. And so a lack of assurance will, will paralyze us. It will keep us from walking in Christ like we need to be walking in Jesus. And yet simultaneously, there is uh, an American arrogance that often leads to a false assurance that quickly deceives. I told you in the introduction to this sermon series that, that John is writing both to uncover uh, within the life of the church false converts. That they, they, There are people, maybe sitting here today, who believe they have a relationship with Jesus they would ask it, if you were to ask them the questions, uh, uh, you know, you believe that Jesus died on the cross? Yes. You believe that he was resurrected? Yes. Have you repented of your sins, turned and followed after him? Absolutely yes. And yet you can say yes to all those things and not be a Christian. So John, through these letters, is hopefully, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to reveal this false assurance in hopes that what? People would become assured in Jesus. Yet simultaneously, I don't think that, that, that John is wanting everyone who hears this letter to walk out of here and, and everybody be questioning on a Sunday afternoon, I'm not saved. I'm not saved. And so th there is this tension um, that we are in in regards to the understanding of assurance. J.D. Greer, he's a pastor and author, and he's currently our Southern Baptist um, Convention president for the entire world. Um, he says this in this great little book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. It says this, I'll be so bold as to say that your spiritual life will really never take off until you have assurance of salvation. Until you know that you are His and He is yours, your obedience will be limited. Your love will be stifled. Your confidence will be shaky and your courage will be Minimum. See, I believe that many of us view salvation like the perpetual guy who's on the horse and he's trying to get his horse to walk and so he gets a big long stick and he puts the carrot out in front of it. Right? Everybody follow? Anybody ever seen cartoons? All right. Is that we have this idea of salvation that is, is like the man on the horse that it's, it's out there. It, it, if we keep moving forward, then salvation is possible, but we're not sure it's actual just keep dangling it out there like God is perpetually holding it out there and we just keep thinking maybe one day we will get it. I don't believe that that's the gospel. Likewise, if, if you are a parent of a kid who's old enough to understand this, how many times do your parents, uh, your kids ever come to you and they ask you a question like, hey, hey dad or hey mom, can, can we go to McDonald's or to Chick-fil-A or, or can we go to Disney or can we go buy this? And they always walk away discouraged when you say what? Maybe. They immediately assume that that is a what? A no. Right? It's a me If you say a maybe, and there's a lot of people inside the church who had that sort of mentality in regards to salvation. It's not sure. It's not assured. It's not certain. It's maybe. And it's reflective of a lot of things that happen within church life. 
See, the uncertainty leads to discouragement. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is about what? In encouragement. See, John is writing this very later, and I'll preach this, or someone at our church will preach this. Um, when we get to 1 John chapter 5, it says this, that, that John is writing that we may know that we have eternal life. This, this portion is not, again, how to be saved. That's not what John is going to do starting today and over the next several weeks. It's not how to be saved. It's a litmus test on if you are saved. So we're going to have to ask ourselves some really tough questions over the next, really, months. Are you saved? Not how to be saved, but are you truly saved? For the gospel to be good news, then it must be certain. Jesus did not come as a possibility of salvation, but Jesus came to save. And so over the next several weeks, several months, we're going to be answering this question or try to answer this question. Man, am I a Christian? How do I, how do I know that I'm truly saved? Am I sure? Am I certain? Do I have assurance which leads to obedience and leads to confidence in the person and work of Jesus so much that it's willing that I'll sacrifice my very time, talent, treasure, and life for it. The sermon in a sentence today, one, there are many, we're going to cover them, one of the marks of assurance is found in pursuit of knowing God through obedience to His Word. One of the marks of assurance of salvation is found in pursuit of knowing God through obedience in His Word. All right, so let's get back to the passage. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. If you have your own Bibles and you like to write in your Bibles, if you're one of those people, circle how many times he's going to say or use the word know in this passage. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. To know Him is to obey Him. To know Him is to obey Him. See, it's impossible to, to know, truly know Jesus apart from obedience to His Word. It's, it's impossible. The Scripture could not ever connect those two ideas. The scripture goes as far as to, to say that to claim Christ and yet not obey his word is, is to say that you and to declare that you are a liar. Uh, I didn't say that. The Bible says that. Man, what a tough statement. You're a liar. Don't you hate it when people tell you that or accuse you of that? And yet the scripture says that, man, if you, if you are saying that you know this Jesus, the Jesus of the scripture, and yet you do not obey, then you are a liar. You may not keep up with current trends within Christendom, but I'm, I'm going to share one with you today briefly, because it, it may not be very popular in philosophy. And what I mean by that is, is, if I was to do a survey inside of this room today, and was to throw out this term, many of you would not agree with its structure. You would not agree with its bullet points. And yet, in practice, this is how many of us live our lives. There's a, a popular movement, and, and me and even Pastor Todd were talking about this week, and they just keep changing the names over it. It's been going on for 
since the Bible um, was written. But there, there is a, a movement that is widespreading um, in much of the world. It's called the Free Grace Movement. At, at its very core, the bones of the Free Grace Movement is this, is that, that a person can be saved without repentance. That a person can be saved without transformation. That a person can be saved without submission or where submission and obedience is optional. And a person can be saved even without continual belief. Now, if I was to ask you those questions, do you believe these things? Most of you, hopefully, prayerfully, especially if you're in Pastor Todd's MC, because I'm sure he's done a bang-up job of teaching you guys, you would say no to those. And yet if I was to evaluate, if we could watch each other's lives and watch the lives of others, we would quickly see that this is how many people who are claiming to be Christians are living their lives. See, it's, it's gospel doctrine and gospel culture. It's gospel doctrine and gospel practice. You can't have one without the other. And yet, yet many people are living their lives, especially in America. And I'm going to preach a, a, a sermon coming up in, in about a month called The American Gospel. But in that, this is the, a, a primary practice of many, specifically in America, who claim to have a relationship with Jesus. Salvation without repentance. Salvation without transformation. Salvation where uh, submission and obedience is optional. Salvation without continual belief. The New Testament is absent, though, of this idea of having belief, true belief, without works or obedience. It's, it's completely foreign to the gospel. It's completely foreign to the scripture. I mean, most of us commonly grew up in, a, in an idea in a Christianum where, where all you had to do was repeat this prayer and like an incantation sang over you or said over you, boom, that's the seal of approval. Now, I'm, I'm not to say that God never uses that. Okay? But there are many people who had false assurance because at a very young age, they repeated the prayer after some pastor declaring and banking on some past experience that has no bearing on their present situation. That's a free grace thing. The pastor said, I'm saved. All you have to do is repeat this and boom, you're saved. And the thing is that, again, the scripture points to something, not, not to belittle that, but something that continues from that. It's not just did you repeat this prayer and you say, but the scripture here would say, um, have you kept the commandments? And we're not just talking about the big 10 inside the Old Testament, but we're saying about this way of life that the word of God has, has laid before us a true and better way to live in the person and work of Jesus. And so you must ask yourself, as I must ask myself, not did I just repeat this, this prayer, but, but today, 20 years later, Am I more obedient? 
Do I desire more of the person and character of God? Am I following? Is it my delight to follow after this Jesus and to obey his word? I mean, when we read the Old Testament, when they talk about the law of God, how do those brothers and sisters talk about it? Like sweet honey on their lips. There's 613 laws for those Old Testament Jews. And it was sweet honey to their lips. On the law of the Lord, I meditate day and night. See, God has not left us in the dark about what he means to obey, but, but rather he has brought to light through the word of God where it is clear we obey it easily. And sometimes where the scripture is not as clear, what should we do? We should use biblical wisdom to determine what is the best course and direction for our lives. Last week I talked a lot about sin. And if sin is missing the mark, right? And how sin has affected both our um, attitude, our actions, and our affections. If one is truly in Christ, if salvation has truly taken place in both of our lives, then guess what it does? It transforms your actions, attitudes, and affections. You can't have one without the other one. It is going to happen. The Holy Spirit has given testimony, the Bible tells us, that the Spirit of God is inside of us. Like, you should be able to know that. We shouldn't have to second-guess it within ourselves, and we shouldn't have to second-guess it within each other, because the, the Spirit is, is making a testimony. It confirms that the Holy Spirit is resting inside of us. I believe it's Romans chapter 8 that says that. And so we see this transformation, our affections. When we think about the things of God, it is emotional. It, it stirs within us a, a, a joy that is supernatural in the midst of much chaos. A desire, a, de, a devotion that it, it rests in us. What is it? Philippians chapter 2, it talks a lot about the attitudes of Christ. That it changes our attitudes, that we have a desire to de-escalate things that are being blown out of proportion, that we have a desire to have a good attitude, to think well, to, to enjoy life, to, to be not false happy, but happy in the midst of, again, much trial and tribulation, that we find joy in the person or work of Jesus. We have clarity, we are sure even this will not be wasted. Even in this, whatever it is that he will get us through. Head, heart, and hands have all been affected by sin. And likewise, head, heart, and hands have all been affected by redemption. I love where the ESV commentary says this. John does not say, obey in order to be forgiven. Rather, he says repeatedly that anyone who is truly in Christ will obey. Now, is this perfect obedience? Absolutely not. But it is a striving obedience. It is a continual, as we'll get to in a few moments here, it is a walking in this person work and this salvation. That There is even a desire there. If you begrudgingly 
are being obedient. And that's, that's the, the, the kind of persistent evidence in your life. Then, then something is missing there. So that's what John is getting at here. He's saying, man, to know him is to obey him. You cannot separate those things, brothers and sisters. And yet this is the popular theology, which is a really bad theology, that is being preached to you, encouraged by you, and is popular not only outside the world, but also resting inside of the church. To know him is to obey him. The second thing that we see in verse 5 here is this. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. When we love God, excuse me, let me go back a little bit so I can make sure I'm following along with the outline here. To to obey him is then to love him, is to love him. See, when we love God, we, we will obey him. This obedience produces deep intimacy and insight into his character that cannot be experienced in a life of disobedience. Do you get that? For those who are trying to follow after Jesus or claiming to follow after Jesus apart from obedience is the reality is you can't have intimacy and knowledge of his character and nature like those who do. Going on a mission trip is great. The evangelistic opportunities, the the possibility of planting churches, the making of disciples, all those things are absolutely phenomenal. You should join us in going on those. But the discipleship not only takes place in those who are speaking and teaching and trying to make disciples out of the people in the audience, but simultaneously, you are being discipled by going. He's using obedience to disciple you. He's using obedience of reading his word, of engaging in prayer, and joining, being a member of a local church. He's using all of those things, not just for the benefit of the body, but also for you and the benefit as an individual to reveal more of his character and nature to you. If you love God, then you will obey God. And if you see this inside of your life, just like obedience, you'll begin to see love and you can be assured that non-Christians are not experiencing those things. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. We must be careful that we do not say that we love God if we do not obey Him. And again, is this perfect obedience? Absolutely not. But it should be consistent. There's less and less sin, more and more obedience as you mature in Christ. This leads to assurance. Spirit testifies. We see it all over our culture, people claiming to love God, and yet practice and promote the sin in their own lives and in the lives of others. This is false assurance when that takes place. We see it everywhere. From social media to television to practical lives. I remember working at another church one time and 
got this benevolence call of uh, this gentleman saying, hey, man, uh, or not, he probably didn't say, hey, man, um, can you guys uh, get me a hotel room for me and my girlfriend? No. But that never crossed his mind that we wouldn't do that. But we see this taking place. Is that we're asking God to bless our sin. We're asking God to bless our sin. And yet the scripture is saying, man, if you, if you love me, then, then, then you're going to obey him. To know him is to obey him. To obey him is to love him. We can't say that we love God yet practice and promote and just get on board with a culture that is living in sin, promoting sin, all of these sorts of things. They're, they're wanting to you to join in. And as soon as it, it becomes really distracting and deceptive and very confusing for a lost and dying world, when you got people, all shades of people who are claiming that they love God but can't agree on what obedience is. See this all the time on a college campus. I always, before my, before my students often find out that I'm a Christian, I'll often every semester, uh, um, freshman semester, in the fall semester, I'll say something like this. You Christians are the most confusing people on the planet. Because you can't agree on what is true. And you can't agree on how you're to live this life. Can't agree on it. So for those on the outside, we're left doing. I don't know what it means to obey God. I don't know what it means to love God. And how do I know that? The Christians don't even know what it means. And so John is trying to bring assurance to, to those who are still left in this church after many have left. And, and they're, they're sitting here and they're like, they're asking tough questions, man. Do I obey God and do I love to obey God? See, God's love saves us and enables us to obey. Our obedience only produces more love. Isn't that true in most all relationships? Jen Wilkin, Bible teacher, author, she works at the Village Church. Um, Jen Wilkin says this, My heart cannot love what my mind does not know. My heart cannot love what my mind does not know. So brothers and sisters, you, you can't obey God and you can't love God apart from knowing his word. If not, then you create, you go to Opryland, you know, they pay paradise to put up a parking lot in a mall. But it used to be this paradise called Opryland in Nashville, right? And you go there and there's all these people and they draw you with big ears and big old lips and a big old head on a little bitty body, right? It, it resembles you, but it's not you. And any time that we claim to love God, yet... We don't know his word. You create a God of your own imagination. You create a caricature of him that resembles him, but is not him. And do you understand the danger of that? Do I understand the danger of that picture? So this is why discipleship groups are, are really important for us here at Mission. That's why MC is, is in an event that we go to. It's, it's the life that we live. That's why we're, we're trying to kick off this initiative to provide theology training for both men and for women. 
But in those theological trainings, the men's group is tomorrow. This is my shameless plug, right? So tomorrow night is our men's group from 6 to 8 here at Forest Park. The first hour is, is very theological. It's very theological. But the second part, it's theology and practice. The second part is the so what. So what, God's sovereign. Okay, God's sovereign, let's go home. No transformation in that. It's saying, okay, if, if God is this way, if this is his character and nature, then how does that invade my marriage? How does that invade my singleness? How, how does that invade me as a grandparent, as a parent, as an employer, as an employee? How does that affect my missionary field as I'm going to work wherever that may be, whether that's in the home or at a school, where, wherever you're taking place, that there is theology and practice, orthodoxy, orthopraxy are one and the same. They must be found together. Are they found together in your life, brother and sister? Is it present? I don't know about you, but as a parent, I hate it when I get the fear. I, let me say this. I, I hate it in my parenting, and I'm sure that I've given my children reason for this, and I, I regret this if I have. But I, I don't like the feeling that I get in my home where my kids are scared of me. I want them to respect me. And I think when the scripture talks about fear of the Lord, we have to understand that it's, it's, a, it's a heightened respect is what the scripture is getting to. A very heightened, not this that he's going to squash me. He has the, every right and power to do that. But it's a heightened respect for the person in the work his position, but also his character, that we highly respect it. See, when we love our Father, we obey out of respect. But when we have an unhealthy fear of Him, we obey out of begrudging duty. See, obedience will either... Well, let's put it this way. Obedience is either from a broken will... Or obedience is from a heart of love. You know why a horse goes where you want it to go? Is you've cut, it's because you put a piece of metal in his mouth and you've jerked his head around. See, that's a breaking of a will. But there's obedience from the heart of love. See, a religion is about breaking down your will, begrudging submission. Salvation gives you a new will. Do you see the difference? For instance, I, I've learned recently from my, my high school daughter that giving kids chores is uncool. Like parents don't do that anymore. Well, they don't. And I mean that in all good Christian love. All right? However, in our house, we give chores because we believe that this is character development. We also believe that this is part of being our family. We also believe that this teaches skills for them to have once they leave our home, right? But, but here's the deal. I, I, I don't want Ava to do the dishes at her house because I tell her to. I want Ava to do the dishes at our house because she loves her family. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? Not because I told her to, 
because she, but because she loves her family more than she loves her time, talent, and treasure and what she wants to do. Isn't that the picture of the gospel? Let, let a man consider, if he's going to follow after me, what must he do? He must take up his cross and what? Die. Daily. It's a daily death out of love, not begrudging submission. You must do this. But our hope, our desire is, in a very small way, I believe that's the desire that is found here, not out of begrudging submission, but, but out of love for her family, out of love for our God, out of love for our church family. We submit to these things. We do these things. We, we sacrifice not because we have to in order to be saved, but because we're saved. I mean, there's an outpouring of love for God and for others. There's something in the world... There, there's something that this world will never understand about what it calls of obedience in Scripture. It's not a book of rules. It's a story of a relationship. See, a prisoner of war can follow rules, can't they? And they better. A slave can follow the rules. They can do whatever you want. If you've seen this, there's this old movie called Cool Hand Luke. Some of you guys, it's a great movie. And every time they do something, they say, like, hitting the rocks over here, boss. Get a cup of water over here, boss. And yet there's no change in those men's hearts. There's no change in those, those, those prisoners, those slaves' hearts. See, they can obey all the rules that you want to get them, and yet their hearts be calloused and cold toward you. The boundaries placed there are out of love, for love. How many times do you remember, if you can remember back to being a teenager, and maybe if you're a teenager here today, you can connect with this, is that your parents have told you that you can or cannot do something. So for in our house recently, we had to have a conversation about Snapchat. If you don't know what that is, don't Google it. All right. Snapchat, it's a very popular uh, application. A lot of uh, young people use it. And we had a conversation because that's a popular thing for a lot of students to use. And I just know too much, all right, because my brother-in-law works for the school system. No. <laughs> like, no, you can't have it, right? Nothing against Ava. It's not that I don't believe that she wouldn't trust it or that she wouldn't use it properly. But it's all the other joke, I mean, people on there that will use it improperly. Does that make sense? And, and so we, we, we have this... This tension, and as, as a parent and as a teenager, I used to put, man, why do my parents put these boundaries on me? Why do they say that I can and cannot do this or that? Right? It just seemed like they were out to get me. They, man, why can't I date her? Why can't I go here? Why can't I drive this fast? You bought me a sports car. It was meant to go this fast. Right? Until you're looking at your own teenager and you go, oh, I know why they did that. They loved they loved me. They loved me. And you don't understand that until you're looking at your own kids. The reason why God has put boundaries here is because he knows more than you and I know. Can we get an amen, somebody? 
right? He knows way more than you and I know. And so he's putting boundaries there that maybe we don't even know why yet. And yet he's placed them there. Why? Because he loves us. And out of love, what do we do? We love him back. Obedience for the believer is not a checklist. It is not about, it is about the changing of a heart. And once the affections of a sinful man transition from darkness to light, one seeks to obey the commands of God out of pure delight. Last part, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. To know God is to obey God. To obey God is to love God. To abide in him is to walk like him. Have you ever considered why the scriptures calls us calls us to such obedience? Because this is the example Jesus set before us. In John chapter 15, verse 4 through 5, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit. By itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, we're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Ephesians 5, 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. 1 Peter 2, 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus knew God, therefore he obeyed God. Jesus loved God, therefore he obeyed him. Jesus abided in God, therefore he walked like God. To know God is both a past knowledge, a current knowledge, and evidence by continual knowledge. Your discipleship happens through obedience. Our tendency is want to skip steps and speed up the process. Before I became a Christian and was called into ministry, I, I wanted to be a graphic designer. I wanted to be an art major. I wanted to be held up somewhere with a pencil, paper, and a computer, left alone, and to do my little drawings, right? And so, in, in, when they're teaching someone how to draw, they do not put out a, a, a still life in front of you. You know what I mean by still life? They set up a table, and they put a bunch of junk on it, and they say, draw what you see on the table. When you're teaching someone how to draw, you know what you do is, is you give them a circle that is typically already drawn on a sheet of paper perfectly, and you teach them how to shade a sphere. Where the light, you pick a point of reference where the light is coming from. So if the light is coming from this side, and it's shining on the ball, then guess what this side? It's darker, and this side, everybody follow me? And you press down, you get it dark, and you get it light. And you do that over and over and over and over and over again. But our temptation is, is to go, where are the oil paints? I watched that Bob Ross. I can do that. If you've ever tried, if you've never painted, go home this week. Go to Walmart's. Get you a bunch of paints, right? Go get a DVD of Bob Ross. And for the first time ever, try to mimic what that brother does. All right? And then I want to keep it. It's a gift to the pastors, okay? It's not going to look nothing like his happy little trees. You're going to like, ooh, it look like a throw up on a canvas, right? But I know a lady, by the time that she was in her 80s, she had learned how to paint by watching Bob Ross, and by the time she was in her 80s, she could do it. But it wasn't because her first one looked like his. It's because she learned how to shade a circle. Our temptation is always to skip ahead. That's why we hate going to the gym. I just want to take a pill. 
I mean, I'm still late at night if I'm ever up, which is it's crazy if I am. But if I'm ever up late at night and they got those infomercials, take this pill. Or you've seen it all over Facebook and these infomercials. You take this and it just shows like the, the still image of like the computer-generated body and they're all like Dunlapped. And then they take this pill and, it, and it's like it just washes off of them. Y'all seen those, right? And I'm like, I wonder if those work. I need some pills, right? I mean, you got sauna suits. You got the, the, the new bike. I mean, don't give your bike away at Christmas to your lady. They get real ticked off, supposedly, when you give them a bike for Christmas, all right? I mean, you got the thing you can put on the wall now, and it's like your personal trainer at your house. You know what that would just become at our house? A mirror. A really expensive mirror. But see, that's the desire is we want to skip the process to get to the finish line, and the gospel never promise you that. You got to trust the process. You got to walk in it. You got to walk in it. Obedience does not save, brothers and sisters. Obedience does not save. But salvation is not absence of obedience. It's not absent of obedience. For you to have assurance, for me to have assurance, we need to be able to have self-reflection this morning. And there are many marks. I've only given you a few of them today. We're going to be covering several of them. These aren't all of them. But as we're going through this process, you've got to be willing and open enough to ask yourself some really tough questions. Do I know God? And the only way that you're going to know Him is through His Word. That's His primary from that, do you know God through your obedience to His Word? Do you have assurance because you love God? And how do you know you love God? It's because you naturally, you supernaturally now want to obey Him. I've said this to you before. If I could walk away, I would. But like a tractor beam... God, the hound of heaven, his graces, mercy, his long-suffering, his patience with me. Every time there is, uh, you know, getting off track, there's the, the gracious nudging to come back. I can't. And it's because of those sorts of things at work in my heart and my desire and my affections. Though imperfectly as they are, I, I mess up really, really often. I'm not the hero of this story or the hero of this church. Jesus is. Because here's the thing. All of this is in context of the passage that we let, read last week. Right? We have an advocate to the Father. He is the propitiation. See, we're to imitate Jesus, and we can be advocates, and we can be caregivers, and we can love, but you know something we can never do for each other? is satisfy the wrath of God. Only Jesus can do it. And all of our assurance, all of our lives stream forth from this. As John 17, 3 says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We interpret this passage from the previous passage, and through the previous passage, that we shouldn't sin. But when we do, what do we have? An advocate. 
and a propitiation. We have a, a satisfier of the wrath of God, which leads us to confidence. It leads us to assurance, not in ourselves, but in the person and work of Jesus. And, and because of Jesus' perfect obedience, what has He done? He has placed within us the opportunity and the possibility. He has enabled us in His love to love Him, to know Him, to obey Him. And if this is present, not superficially, but like this is truly present in your life, then you can have assurance. And yet, friends, if it is not consistent in your life or 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 or, or or seen and, and known in a consistent manner, then repent and believe. Repent and believe. Obedience is not getting approval from God. Obedience is the byproduct of one whom God has set His seal of approval on. Immaturity in Christ says, I better do this because I don't want to go to hell or make God mad at me or because I want God to bless me. Maturity in Christ says, I get to do this because I've been given the gift of grace. God is not and will never be angry with me again. And I've already been given the riches of heaven through Jesus. Do you know God? Do you obey God? you love God? Do you abide, rest in, connected to? you walk? If so, may great assurance rest upon you. And if not, may great conviction rest upon you. Let's pray.